Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 3. And I will be reading verses 20 through 35. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they are saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, I guess, I venture to guess that you all got pretty excited when I read verses 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I thought, yeah, you guys are thinking, yeah, I'm going to get that question answered. <laughs> now, these are probably two of the most famous verses in the Gospel of Mark, right? Probably even all of the Gospels combined. And I bet you're thinking now, finally, I'm going to get this question I had for a long time answered today. And it's true, not only you, but many people, Christians for sure, and even non-Christians have this question, especially because of what we know or what we have heard concerning God and his love and his grace. Well... We will get to that, although we are only going to touch on it today, so sorry about that. Because the topic really is, because that topic really is not the most important topic in today's passage. So hold on, okay? We'll get to it. Actually, our section today, indeed in Mark's gospel, is about Jesus. Again, you're going to hear it every week. It, uh, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Remember what chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So we have read and we'll continue reading until we finish this book. It is about Jesus' authority. It's about his sovereignty. It's about his power. It's about his strength. The kingdom of God is ushered in in a mighty way with the coming of Jesus. We have seen, uh, and, and as we have seen through the way he has taught with his authority, how he had healed people with a touch or even with a word, how he has cast out unclean spirits and how he forgives sins. And Jesus amasses an increasingly growing following as people from all over Galilee come to follow him. And with this increasing following comes increasing opposition. Some of his followers are only confused or just misunderstand him. Others are strictly opposed to him. But the focus of these verses is Jesus. It is the authority and supremacy of God. That's the focus. Jesus is mighty and powerful. Jesus is stronger than any strong man. So now I hope you can see that the key verses are not verses 28 and 29. They are important in their own right, but they come on the tail of verse 27, which is in fact the key verse. Verse 27 is talking about Jesus Christ, the one who had bound the strong man. That, and so that needs to be our focus this morning. That's the main point of our passage. Now, Mark, like the other Gospels, is what it is. It's a Gospel. It's, a, it's an historical narrative as a Gospel writer is telling the story of Jesus. And there are some parables interspersed. And what's a parable? Well, I looked it up online and it says, a short, simple story, usually of an occurrence of a familiar kind, from which a moral or religious lesson can be drawn. Thank you, Google. Parables depict many varying aspects of the kingdom of God. And Mark uses parables to introduce significant acts of Jesus. And there is a parable in our passage. But Mark also uses another literary technique here. I think it's so important to come to Sunday school because we learn about literary techniques like this morning. And you might be saying to yourself, a literary technique in a gospel? Well, yeah, he does. And that literary technique he uses for all of your, all of you literature majors is called a chiasm. Don't worry. One author calls it the sandwich technique. I know you guys like your sandwiches, but since I like grilling, I'm going to call it the hamburger technique. It just sounds a little juicier, doesn't it? In this technique, there are two outside buns, which speak of the same or similar things. And then in the middle, there is the patty, the meat, the important truth, the main point. So you can say verses 21 and 31 and 32 are the buns, which talk about Jesus' family, the ones who are near to him. And verses 22 and 30, you could say, are the condiments, like the uh, lettuce and the tomato or whatever you put on there. They talk about the, 
scribes and the others that oppose Jesus. Here, specifically the scribes from Jerusalem. And then the meat patty portion of our passage is verses 23 through 29 with the key verse in 27. These again are about Jesus. Jesus uses parables to prove his main point here that he is the stronger than and he has bound the strong man, Satan himself. And from this, I hope to draw out three points of application for us. Now, in verse 20, it says, then he went home. Then he went home. And other translations say that he went into a house. Now, we do not know what house or whose house, but we know that all along the crowd or multitude has been amassing. Verse 20 says that the crowd of people gathered again. And there were so many people that they could not even eat. There either would have not been enough food to feed everyone, or more likely it was so crowded that they could not make it to the table. They were shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, I was watching uh, the football game on Saturday down in Pasadena, the Rose Bowl, and uh, man, look at all the people that they cram into that can called the Rose Bowl. They're shoulder to shoulder. Uh, this is the, the the view I get of what's going, uh, what it looks like inside this house. Anyways, our points will center around those involved there, those who are surrounding Jesus, his family, the scribes from Jerusalem, uh, these groups' appraisal of Jesus, and Jesus himself, who is the center of the story. Well, first, there are those who have initial unbelief, the uh, hamburger buns of our passage, verses 21 and 31 through 32. These are Jesus' own family. Those who are near him, or as the original says, those of his own. When Jesus' own people heard about Jesus, that he, he, that he had become popular and many people were following him, and now he was inside a house, they attempted to seize him. They tried to bind Jesus to deprive him of his freedom. Why? Because they thought that Jesus had lost his senses. Their estimation of Jesus was that he has flipped out that he was off his rocker. These are Jesus' own kin. These are Jesus' own friends and family. But this is a reasonable and understandable reaction because even those closest to Jesus just do not get it. How could they? Before Mary was married to Joseph, it took a visit of an angel to tell her that she would give birth to the Savior of the world. And then if you are familiar with Jesus' early years, you would remember Luke 2.48, where people all around were astonished that a 12-year-old Jesus would be in the temple listening and asking questions of the teachers. And also his own parents did not understand when Jesus said that he had to be about his father's business. Later on in John 2 at the wedding of Cana, his mother was worried when they ran out of wine. I guess many of you would be worried too. 
And Jesus said to his own mother in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And these were godly, virtuous people. You need to understand that this reaction is common, and it's understandable. There are those who are covenant children born and raised in a Christian household that just misunderstand Jesus. You can go to a good church, you could receive good teaching and sound doctrine and still not be clear about Jesus or Jesus' words or Jesus' actions. You know, you can go to the best theological schools and colleges, Reformed Theological Seminary online, and receive the best teaching by the most renowned teachers and still miss the point. Remember, you and I have not yet reached perfection, and you just have to come to grips with the fact that you cannot and will not know everything in this life. Yes, children, you don't know everything. You might just mess up. You might just misunderstand. Still in verse 31, his family are standing outside the house because they cannot get near Jesus because of the crowd. And so they are sending for him and they are calling for him. They, they merely just don't get it. And it is understandable. It's natural. And my prayer for all of you today would be that God would help you to grow in his grace and that he would help you to grow in knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Secondly, there are those who will be those who are really against him. So the, the first group of people, they just, they're trying to figure it out. But the second group of people are those who are really against Jesus. While it is natural and understandable to misunderstand Jesus as the first group of people, the second group of people are intently and purposely against him. They know or have seen or at least have heard about Jesus, who he claims to be and, and what he has been doing, but they do not care about the evidence. Their hearts and their minds are already set against him. They are willfully defiant. Uh, we've seen some of this already with the Pharisees and their scribes and others in the crowd who were reasoning in their hearts about Jesus and then complaining to his disciples and then accusing Jesus to his face. If you remember, until now, they accused Jesus for not being a good Jew. They accused him of not following the law or keeping the Sabbath. When Jesus healed the paralytic, they accused him of blasphemy, claiming to have God's authority. So now, now we see the evidence of this in the lettuce, tomatoes, condiment portion of our hamburger structure in verses 22 and 30. The scribes were sent down from Jerusalem. They were not just the scribes of the Pharisees who had been following Jesus around all the time. They were an official delegation from the very seat of the religion in that day. What we're talking about, this group of people here are the top dogs, and they mean business. Remember, the scribes of the Pharisees in the region were already trying to catch Jesus, and in 3.6, their last resort was to do what? To conspire 
with the Herodians, their natural enemies even, about how they might do away with Jesus. Now word has made it back to Jerusalem and they are mad. They're, they're furious. They're upset. And so they, these, this, this delegation came down looking for a fight. They came with a new, stronger tactic to try to discredit Jesus. This group of people willingly and intently reject Jesus. And in verse 22, they accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. What they are accusing him of is being possessed by the devil and doing his ministry and the power of the devil. And we will see in a minute just how absurd that notion really is. So they intently want to put an end to Jesus and his ministry, thus using the strongest accusation possible. Because they say he is counter-religious. Jesus does not fit into their mold, their idea of who the Messiah should be. So they give him the highest false accusation possible. They oppose him violently. And they say that he has the devil charging him with sorcery. You know, even though Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there he does his ministry, he has sent his Holy Spirit. And, but there are those who willfully and directly attack his church, his ministers, and his followers, whether they are of other religions or cults, or whether they are wolves within the church, masquerading in sheep's clothing. But remember, antagonism against us who bear the name of Christ is not directly against us, but against Christ himself. And he will plead our case. He will surely vindicate his church. My encouragement for you all here is to persevere, church. Persevere. Who knows? Maybe even some of them will turn from their wicked ways and come running into the loving arms of Jesus. That is the amazing grace of God. That is our hope. That is our prayer. And that is our heart's desire. But really, what this really shows us, what the direct antagonism of the scribes from Jerusalem and the others shows us, is the ultimate supremacy of Jesus, which is our third point. Jesus gives a clear, clever answer or rebuttal to the scribes by the use of parables in verses 23 through 27 and an important explanation in verses 28 through 30. And again, right in the middle, you see the hamburger patty, the key verse, verse 27, it's all about Jesus. Verse 23, and he called them to him. Jesus is going to make a solemn and important announcement. And he straight out asks a rhetorical question that is challenging them. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? You see, for Satan to cast out demons defeats Satan's own purpose. This is a logical impossibility and this turns their unreasonable accusation on its head, having absolutely nothing to stand on. 
does not work that way. The notion is entirely absurd. And then Jesus provides the answer to his own rhetorical question in verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In, verse, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came preaching the kingdom, the kingdom of God, anyways, and not the kingdom of Satan. Verse 25 says, If a house divided against itself is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Well, the house that Jesus is speaking of here is the realm which is ruled by Satan. And how can the family of Satan, his demons, survive if they are divided? Verse 26, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If Satan was at war with himself, he and his influence would be over. Oh, by obliterating that absurd notion, you can see that Jesus is leading up and to what he really is. He is leading up to the main point, the glory of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. That's what it's about. Mark wants us, he wants you and I to gaze at the beauty of the authority, the power, and the strength of our Lord and Savior here. Jesus is the one who is stronger than and binds up the strong man. This is the mission for which Jesus was sent by the Father to manifest the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God is manifest in our midst. Jesus binds up the strong man. Jesus enters the strong man's house and plunders his good and plunders his house. Satan is absolutely no match for him. The real opponent and despoiler is Jesus. He has subdued the devil. I think Isaiah 49 verses 24 through 26 gives us a good picture of what is going on here as Isaiah is the Old Testament gospel of Jesus. Isaiah 49, 24 through 26 says, Can the prey be taken away from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jesus, Jesus rescues God's people from his and our oppressors. And there is no one or nothing that can stop him, not even Satan himself. And brothers and sisters, you have hope, eternal hope, for eternal salvation. Jesus has won the victory already, and he will win the victory. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is your hope. This is your comfort. This is your joy from this passage. As Mark writes his gospel, we are only at the end of chapter 3. We've been in it for several weeks now. And we have already reached one of the pinnacles of the strength of the almighty, almighty Jesus. Now we will touch briefly on that topic that your ears have been tickling to hear. What you've been waiting for, and I'm sorry. 
I'm not going to be able to cover it all in a whole lot of detail, but that question is, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, first, you have to be clear in your mind who Jesus is talking to in the scripture. He is talking to the scribes from Jerusalem who just accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus has just emphasized the seriousness of their charge and responds now with the simple gospel truth that all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they may utter. If anyone comes to Jesus sincerely asking forgiveness, there is not one sin which he will leave unforgiven. Not a single one. And again, you see the amazing grace of God. And then, secondly, remember he's still directing, he's talking to the scribes. He says, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. So I think you, it would be better to explain it this way, that you need to know what this is not talking about. This is not grieving the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians, because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And it just said right here that sin is forgivable. All sin is forgivable. Now, I doubt that any of you here who confessed Jesus has ever committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. After all, you're here. If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin worthy of eternal damnation, you can rest knowing that you have not committed it because it's not just a slip of the tongue. Verse 35 talks about doing the will of God. So intently and continuously to, to, to intently and continuously go against God's will your entire life until you die, that is the only way that you could commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because while you have breath, while you have a heartbeat, there is still time to repent. There is still time to believe in the gospel. Nonetheless, this is a stern warning from Jesus, and we all must take it seriously. It is a warning to the scribes and to the Jewish religious institution of what is in store for them if they continue this, if they keep this up. It is a warning to those today who willingly neglect the means of grace, who willingly deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a warning for those who are in the grip of sin, who are given into temptation and turn their back on Jesus. And it is an encouragement. Yes, it is a comfort for you who battle temptation and sin day in and day out. Jesus said that in John, in the world, you are going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Well, the last thing I want you to consider today is, who is Jesus' true family? Who are the members of Jesus' true family? Jesus, looking about at those who sat around him, uh, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
Verse 35, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So you see, whoever does the will of God is in Jesus' true family. And what that means is, his spiritual family supersedes his physical family. And you need to ask the important question, what then is the will of God? How then will I know God's will? Well, uh, by now, you ought to know that God's will is found in his word. We can look at God's will in a broad sense then. We could say it's God's word. Then we can look closely at key verses within the Bible which specifically mention God's will. And in the interest of time, I will mention just one of those verses. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 It's very specific and it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Here we see that God wills growth and maturity becoming more and more like Jesus, and that means putting away the deeds of the flesh. Now, let us bring it back to the Gospel of Mark. In 1, 14 and 15, we know why Jesus came. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and his message was what? Repent and believe the gospel. So do you get it? A member of Jesus' family is one that repents and believes the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. And all of this, all of this, is all part of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in those whom he chose. You and I did not choose to be part of Jesus' family. That's the amazing thing. We did not wake up one morning and take a sip of our coffee and say, hmm, I think I want to join the family of God. It was God who took the initiative. It was the Holy Spirit who worked with the, with the word to draw us to Jesus. And he promises that he will bring us all the way home to glory. That's our heavenly home. That's the place that we long for. That's the wonder of all. That's the glory and authority and strength and might of our wonderful Savior. That the King Jesus would save a wretch like me. Jesus reached down and he pulled me from the pit. The greater strong man has bound the strong man and he has loosed Satan's chains of bondage on all who would call on his name. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has bound up the strong man, the one who did all that was possible in order to reach down and to save a wretch like me and anyone else here who is calling on the name of Jesus for salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us as it is often so easy to get down on ourselves when we get stuck in a rut. But Lord, we know that even the deepest rut is not too deep 
for you to come and to save us and to rescue us and to call us back to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would call many more back to yourself because today is the day of salvation. We know that you do have and you will have all dominion and power and glory and might. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.